Anderson, the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Friday, Jay Santos, Mike Gallagher, Santos and the sidekick. We'll be talking ETSU men's basketball and update on women's basketball. We've got fail downs. Fail downs. And we've got bold predictions all coming up on today's podcast. May I just say it is a very eclectic fail downs. Going all the way from the ranks of the NFL to college basketball to big time newspapers like the Washington Post, Dying Industry, and now we know why. That will be in the second fail down. So it's uh, it's going to be good today. I'm excited for the podcast. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited that uh, at least we can play some of our games. Unfortunately, segment two, we're going to talk about some games we won't get to play. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, in due time, but certainly ETSU men's basketball, uh, back-to-back losses now. They've lost three of their last four. they got a big game coming up Saturday, which, of course, we'll preview in just a second. But another, uh, man, just a sort of head-scratching defeat. It's, and we saw where Ladarius Brewer had gone a couple games, three games, I guess, without double figures. And the Citadel was like, okay, teams have been able to take Ladarius Brewer out, but, you know, Tamari Monsanto has been cooking, if you will. That's the, the proper term. So then uh, now – That's a proper term, okay. I, that's what I'm assuming. Okay. That's a proper term, right? So then uh, basically they didn't want to let Tamari cook, so they went to the box and one. They did what they can to get him out of it. And then Ladarius Brewer him. was able to, uh, you know, kind of get back in his scoring rhythm. The problem was 0 for 7 day, the first goose egg in Tamari's career. I knew he'd come back down to earth, as did you. We weren't living in a fantasy world where Demario was going to score 20 every single game. And let's remember the accomplishment for what it was. I mean, he's one of, what, four or five guys that have done this in the last 15 years, right? Longest streak since 2000, I think, 7-08 is what Kevin Brown came up with. But that, I don't think, and me and him argued about this, and you know, Jason Shea is on the same side as myself and probably you as well, but that was over the span of two seasons. It was like five 20-point games to end a season, and then the next season he started with a 20-point game. But Tim Smith in 05-06 is what I found in the same season, so about 15 years. Longest streak in 15 years in the same season and in like 12 or 13 years in multiple seasons. Incredible. I did not picture him coming down to earth like that because that was not settling your feet back on the ground, you know, 8, 10, 12-point game, lightly coming back down from your angelic rise over the basketball world as a freshman. It was crashing down, speeding, hurtling towards Earth, and then making a big, huge crater into it once he got there. I uh, didn't picture it going down that way, and it was unfortunate because if he does have the 8, 10, 12, you know, you're right in the game, if not winning it. Um, it's been odd to see kind of the ebb and flow lately, and you and me have talked about this. If they can get going at the same time, right, Ladarius and Damari, but they have this year. There have been many games, I think I counted up, there's like – 30-plus points nine times this year between the two. You take 30-plus from both of them, right? Because that's saying they're scoring, you know, 15 and 15, 18 to 12. I would take that. They've done that nine times this year, so it's not like they haven't showed up on the same day before. The issue has just been lately, as you said, three consecutive games for Ladarius, not reaching double figures. Coach Shea says maybe some of that's positional, right, where he's playing point guard, but he's been doing that for a while now. So, that was strange, and then to see uh, the goose egg from Damari certainly disconcerting. Uh, but I was impressed with the Citadel. You know, they're a different team at home. They won 10-13 to 13 there, and Hayden Brown, as we've discussed, he got into a role and a rhythm early on, right? We didn't want him to affect the game. My key to the game on our broadcast, Buccaneer Sports Network, was don't let him affect the game. He had big numbers here, but I wouldn't say that he really was a game changer as they got blown out by 28, but 21 points, 12 rebounds, 6 assists. He affected it in a lot of different ways. You know, very impressive 
sort of bounce back there. I, I think for Damari, it was one of those that if he could have got one ball to go in, right? I think that was – and then it was clearly in the second half there were two possessions that as soon as he touched the ball, it was all about I need to try to figure out how I can get a bucket to go down. And it was about him. And it didn't go well on those two shots. Then he got back kind of into the thing where he was rebounding, had a couple of chances right around the rim, didn't go in, uh, missed a couple of tap-ins, missed another layup. So – 14 what would be considered layups were missed in the game by ETSU. And some of those were tipping opportunities off offensive rebounds where the ball kind of hung and went. Some of those right around the rim. And now they were worse from two, but there were some two-point shots that were just inside the arc, just outside the paint. So going from like I would say maybe a six-foot and in, four, four to six feet and in, there were 14 missed shots. And that's a troubling trend because we saw that a lot um, the last couple of games. So, I, you know, those are the ones you're supposed to be able to make. And I realize some games, you know, they're not all equal because sometimes you're trying to finish through contact. Sometimes there, um, you know, isn't a whistle. And sometimes in games there are a whistle. And the first game with the Citadel, you know, 33 throw attempts for each tissue. This time I think it was only nine. And you look at the final numbers, and Citadel crushed each tissue's free throw line. But let's be honest, there were eight attempts, ten attempts late in the game that kind of skewed that to where there were similar attempts. I think uh, Citadel attempted about uh, three more before all the fouls happened towards the end of the game. They so, didn't want to put the bucks away there for a bit. They actually right. missed a couple yeah. of free throws. They missed three in a row, yeah. which, which was shocking considering the way that they had played. But to me, the, the issue, you know, just struggling – from right around the rim to get things to go down. And so I, I think that's where it's going to have to pick back up because as the Citadel who normally, you know, allows points, but around the rim they're pretty physical. Everywhere else they're, they're really not. Usually you can get your own shot. Now they did a great job again of getting kind of Damari, and I think kind of maybe took ETSU off guard because people have been so focused on Ladarius Brewer. I think Coach said at the postgame show, Coach Shea was saying, you know, we just try to use him as a screener, a decoy, because even though it's box it's still man-to-man. Like, like it was still man-to-man on him. They didn't really double Monsanto, and, and you know, except for I think they doubled everybody when he got a post. It was once or twice they threw it inside of Monsanto, they did double, but they double everybody. Plus, that's sort of their thing. So they finish, and they play very tough as the Citadel inside. You know, they're going, well, it's going to be even that much more difficult against Wofford because that is their game plan is just try to beat you to death and, you know, try to try to muck it and, and be more physical on you and try to, you know, get you frustrated. I was really impressed. In both games that we saw Stephen Clark for the Citadel, I know he's not someone that's going to be you know 12 to 15 a game and we'll draw the headlines, we'll put up the big offensive numbers, but what, nine, ten, three assists and four blocks, nine points and rebounds, three assists, four blocks, and he had four blocks in the first game, and I think he only missed like a shot or two this past game, only missed one shot in the first game, controlled the paint. Um, you try to attack him, try to go after him, and, and I like that. Uh, that's what we've been calling for the Bucks to do, right? Be aggressive, get to the rim, and if there's a shot blocker there, play through that contact. Uh, don't shy away and make the shot more difficult than it means to be trying to earn your way to the line. But Stephen Clark was a game changer, very efficient. And I want to be clear about Damari. I, I don't blame him for taking a shot or two, making it quote-unquote about him in that second half, trying to get one to go down. Because you see what the Bucks have been recently when he's scored 20-plus. And looking at everyone else around him, the only other consistent player, again, recently, has been David Sloan. Double digits, seven of the last nine, five-plus assists, in the same amount, seven of the last nine games. And so when you've got Damari, right, who is doing these otherworldly things, firstly, it was probably kind of shocking for him to be shut out in the first half. Uh, I, I was shocked. I know personally. 
Um, I know he's probably trying to keep an even keel and let the game come to him, but you got to start forcing it at some point. You're hoping it's just a possession or two and not more than that. I think it was for DeMar. I think largely he played within the offense. Only took seven shots, didn't try and go over the top and say, I just got to keep shooting till one goes in. You know, that, that's erratic and out of control and can hurt your team. I don't think he did that, but nothing would go down, right? And it was unfortunate to see for Damari because, especially with the team that's coming up, they're going to need him. And hopefully he's refocused and back in the zone because outside of Damari in game one against Wofford, 15 of 45 from the floor for the team and 5 of 22 from three. Um, they've been kind of an odd team, Wofford, lately. They lost to the Citadel, VMI, and Chattanooga, but beat Mercer, ETSU, and Furman. So a little bit confusing. They've been out-rebounded six games in a row. That's good news for Damari because I think sometimes to pull yourself out of a game like that, that he had against the Citadel, something that can get you going is touching the ball in other ways, right? If you're on the defensive end, a couple of blocks, taking away a couple of steals on the glass like Damari can be, pulling down a bunch of rebounds. All of that will lead to good things for him on the offensive end. Uh, it was certainly unfortunate to see that road loss, but you got to erase that from your memory. Got to look at this game at Freedom Hall. Got to hold serve at home, as Jason Shea said. And if Ladarius and Damari can get, you know, 30-plus, I mean, to me, that's huge. I'm not so worried you'd be having this conversation. Wofford loses, right, to Chattanooga. gets blown out, matter of fact, at home. Um, I don't worry so much about that affecting this game. There's some teams, and we've talked about it with, you know, the Furmans, the UNCGs, uh, explosive offensive teams, where they can come out and just shove it up your rear end, right? And they can completely take the game over early on. They come out mad, furious, don't want to take no for an answer and blow you out. Wofford doesn't strike me as that down, hungry animal that some teams can be in this situation. Um, but it does look like, just looking recently, that they rise to the occasion for the big game. So I don't think they're any more dangerous than they usually would be, but the Bucks have to remember what happened a couple of weeks back. You know, they're not going to beat themselves. ETSU is going to have to go out and take the game from them. I think it's, it, to me, again, this game's really about sort of ETSU, especially at home. I think it's about them, how they respond, how they do whatever. I think the Bucks have been pretty successful at home against Wofford. I know a couple years it's flipped. It's, you know, swept when Wofford didn't lose a game in league play. And the last year, tissue swept Wofford all three games, and that's happened uh, before back-to-back years. But for the most part, you know, ETSU has one road, besides last year, has one road win at Wofford. But besides two years ago, Wofford does have one win at ETSU. So they've been fairly good battles at home. These tend to be low scoring. They tend to be points at a premium. So if ETSU can get, you know, a couple of guys with some healthy numbers, two 20-point scores, or two guys, you know, 17 to 20 range, something like that, certainly that changes things dramatically. I think, again, you know, the first matchup, ETSU versus Wofford, they were 9 of 17 from, from inside the chart circle. You know, to me, it's still eight misses. I still think, even though that's better than the, the last three games, if you look at it, that's still – Eight misses right around the room, and they are going to force it. Sam Godwin did not play, if you remember the first matchup. Right. Um, Transitional bit here into the Wofford talk, but uh, Sam Godwin didn't play. Um, uh, who uh, uh, suspended? Safford. Safford. I was going to say Sanford. I knew that wasn't right. Safford. Uh, Morgan Safford set out uh, because of team discipline, wasn't even in the building. So he's going to give Wofford a little more depth. I think Godwin, to me, considering ETSU struggled inside and how he plays. 
and especially seeing what Clark just did to sit up. Because besides Vonnie Patterson, I'm not real sure if anybody pump faked going in there. And Patterson pump faked and still got blocked once. But he was able to go in there using pump fakes and go. I think ETSU, and again, they started the game going right at the rim. It was a, it was, they had Hideki on one side, had Vonnie on another, which one was open. They gave it to Patterson. Patterson goes right to the rim, gets the first two. It's interesting. The first two of the game always seems to be some sort of layup around the rim or at least a very good look from some sort of post player there, and then literally it takes, like, forever to get back to the rim. Yeah, and you could qualify it as post player or maybe, like, non-offensive threat, right, because Vonnie Patterson isn't somebody that you're usually going to think. Now, he did have his, I believe it was his fourth double-digit game, maybe his fifth double-digit game. Tied a career high, 13 points. Tied a career high, 13 points. So it's not like he can't offensively be someone that contributes, but not generally going to be a top option that you're going to look to on this team. And Silas Hideki, again, someone that can offensively be involved but isn't more than four to six shots per game. And it seems like those are the two guys that do always get those early game touches. I know I said Wofford, you know, not going to be that hungry animal, but I think playing the percentages and looking at how things have gone lately for their stars, while I don't think it's going to be storm out of the gate and take the bull by the horns and really control things from wire to wire, this can be a dangerous situation for ETSU simply because of the individuals and the stretches that they're coming off of. Storm Murphy and Ryan Larson are coming off of scoreless games. Storm Murphy scoreless. That does not happen very often. Uh, Trey Hollowell is just five for his last 21. Messiah Jones hasn't gone double figures and four straight. And against Chattanooga, Jones, Hollowell, Murphy, and Larson combined for just nine points. There, there were other guys that stepped up. Yes, Keaton Turner, 13 points. Um, after having just 11 the rest of the year. So some unheralded figures for Wofford. But considering that that many guys have been down lately, no, I do not think that the team as itself has that, um, for lack of a better term, you know, kind of F-U attitude, right, that I'm going to do what I'm going to do and you're not going to be able to keep up. But when you have especially a player like Storm Murphy, right, and then some of the others that I just mentioned, coming off stretches like they have, it's dangerous to think about when that will come to an end. And Storm Murphy's too consistent of a player to lay back-to-back eggs on a collegiate basketball floor at the tail end of his career. And those other players that we mentioned are usually pretty consistent. So I'm a little bit worried there on an individual basis rather than a team basis because a couple of those guys go off and all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, if you can't score more than 60 or 65, what could be another poor result? I think the the big thing, and I'm going to go – go back to two because I just want to qualify this real quick. I went and looked up the last six games. Last couple games you, you felt like DTSU played well, I would assume, is Furman home, Citadel home. And the reason I bring that up is the Bucks again, inside the charge circle, 64% a higher percentage than what Furman did. The game against the Citadel, 71% a higher percentage than what the Citadel did. you got to make about two of every three, right? Yeah. That's, that's fair, isn't right. it? Right. And, 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 and even even though they were better, you're looking at ETSU, and this is where I'm going to go with this, ETSU 64%, Furman 63%. In the Citadel game, 71 to 67%. So both teams very well. Then all of a sudden you look at Wofford 67%, the Bucks 53%. Then you look at the Mercer game. Mercer 69%. ETSU better, but 62%. Then you look at Chattanooga, Bucks 50% from right around the rim. Chattanooga, 62%. And then the last game, Citadel, 67%. The Bucks 45%. So, you know, you can point to all these, well, we need him going, we need uh, three-point shooting. Everybody wants to talk about whatever. But I can point to the last four games compared to the last couple games. Everyone says ETSU is playing well, and it's right around the rim. I, and, and you look at all the extra buckets. And, yes, you know, but if you look at 18 missed shots for, for ETSU, um, inside the charge circle against the Citadel. Then you're looking again, 
against Chattanooga. The Bucks only had 10 attempts compared to Chattanooga's 16, just 10, and they were 5 of 10 from there. And that's 50%, but, again, you're looking at six more attempts, five more makes from Chattanooga. a lot of shots against Chattanooga. You know, Mercer, ETSU, 11 of 16. Uh, I'm sorry, Mercer was 11 of 16. The Bucks 13 of 21. So they had three more shots, just two more makes, but still the percentage numbers go down. And, and that one you could go, okay, that one's 69, 62%, okay, a little doable. But you look at those, and to me, what's going to be the difference maker is how focused is ETSU, how committed are they against Wofford. As you look at the first matchup against Wofford, ETSU was 9 of 17, 53%, again, 8 of 12. Wofford settled for some more outside shots, but ETSU was able 17 times to get around the rim. To me, if that number is 12, 13, 14, then I think ETSU will have enough stuff because if those shots are going down, it's just simple math that everyone, uh, besides it being easy two points, everyone's going to start being pot committed to trying to stop the inside game, which then could give shooters more of an outside shot. If they're struggling from inside, Chad and, uh, I mean, Citadel really had no reason to change up anything they were doing because they weren't getting pounded inside. They weren't doing anything. Mercer was the same thing. They really weren't getting pounded inside. Wofford was fine living with ETSU struggling with two-point game, layup game, and, and you're going to be shocked when we get to keys to the game on Saturday what my keys to the game are going to be. But that is basically, to me, the biggest difference in the last four games and how the team has played and the focus is because of what has happened in the layups, not everything else that's happened to Mary's Brewer, not everything. I can statistically look at this as someone who can just do simple math and go, you know, two more buckets that Wofford changes that game. You know, four more, three more buckets at Citadel changed that game. A couple more buckets at Citadel, and you're not fouling late at the end of the game. You know, and then it doesn't stretch to an eight-point game when it shouldn't. So, I, to me, that's the biggest thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to harp on. And then Storm Murphy, I agree. I think he's been ridiculous. I would be shocked if he doesn't come back, come back with a vengeance. Yes. You know? My question is, though, if Storm gets his average, what does everybody else do? And can ETSU stop that? Again, that just worries me that those other guys around him, and we're not including Safford, right, because he's had a couple of good games since coming back, but, you know, Jones and Larson and Klesman has also had a couple of good games. They do have some depth. You know, they're not explosive scorers, but they have seven or eight guys that can put up double figures. That is not something that a lot of teams in this league have. I'm not sure if it's something that ETSU has, you know, again, on a consistent basis. Um and we talked about the stat post game while you're waiting for Coach Shea to come up, but and you've broken it down a little bit more. Even inside the two point arc, the last three losses, so we're going to you know, the Wofford game starting there, and then Chattanooga and the Citadel, 42 of 100 from two, 42 percent. That's pretty simple math. Talk about math. 42 of 100, 42 percent from inside the arc. That is not good enough. Two point field goals, and we don't expect the Bucks to live up to this every single night. But at home, since Coach Shea has gotten here, the Bucks are shooting. 57% from two. And that, of course, has led to what I believe is now, after the Chattanooga game, a 76-14 and 14 home record. Uh, you don't beat ETSU at home, what, almost nine times out of ten. It's like an 851 percentage because they are so good making the shots that they make. 57%, that's a top-five mark in the country across 353 Division One teams. So you can hear easily that 42 of 100, 42%, 15% below what you usually make, that is not going to get it done. You said what, uh, 62% is what you made at Mercer uh, inside the charge circle? 62%, that was a game that you won, right? You'd still like it to be a little higher, sure, and Mercer made a few more around the basket, but you still won the game. So maybe 60% is that magic number that you have to get to. Certainly you're not going to shoot 57% every single game from two, though the Bucks have at home, 
over the last five and a half years, but you need to be especially around the bucket with those easy ones, dialed in, focused in. Again, give credit to a Stephen Clark, right, because he disrupted a lot of those shots. I'm not sure Wofford has that guy that's going to be in there that's going to disrupt a ton of shots, which means there's that much more importance on the Bucks converting when they're in. Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be important. And some of the two-point shot numbers, because ETSU the last couple of years have not been bashful about mid-range jumpers. Like we saw Trey Boyd add that to his arsenal. I, I think Sorrell Smith several times this year we've been able to see him hit sort of those mid-range jumpers, top of the key, 15-foot free throw line jumpers, and ETSU is not afraid of those. And to me, they really shouldn't be. And if you look at some of those numbers, they're around 50% from sort of that 12 to 19-foot range. And to me, that's pretty daggone good because of where you are. But if you're shooting about as good, and last game they shot actually better from there than they did from four feet in, I think that's where it's got to change. If you could go 67 to 75% in the two-foot, you know, four foot, six foot, whatever, charge circle you want to call it, something in there, and you're shooting 50% from two, and then, you know, then you have to be 35% from three, and those numbers seem to, I think, would add up as long as the shots are, are sort of equal and you're you're not shooting 67% from the charge circle because they only took three shots, right? I mean, if you're taking the, the, the right quantity of shots, then to me that math adds up, you know, 67, 50, 35. Well, and you make a good point. When you're not making those close-in shots, you have to be that much better from further away. So from three, you're going to have to shoot if you're, you know, what, 50% from four to six feet. And in, you're going to have to shoot like 60, 70% from three to make up for that because you're missing those easy shots. You have to make up that difference somewhere. And the Bucks just have not done that lately. And, you know, Coach Shea harped on defense postgame, not getting back in transition early, and then the Citadel hitting some threes from outside in the second half, which got them rolling and opened up their offense and created more room for – back cuts, and I'm not as worried about the transition side for Wofford, because again, the Citadel is going to play, as we know, you know the most up-paced, uh, fast game in the country, right? They want to get out in tempo, and if you're not up for that kind of game, then yeah, they are going to blister you. Wofford isn't so much that way, so I'm not so much worried about that, but if Stuart Murphy starts to hit a couple, and you've got, again, Godwin and Safford, which they didn't have when ETSU visited. That was a surprising thing to me. When that game started and there was no Godwin, no Safford, I was like, oh, this is a guaranteed win. And then Wofford still found a way with B.J. Mack with those five late points to take the victory. Now that they're at full strength, I, I am worried about this game, not so much because they're coming off a loss, but just because they were able to beat the Bucks without Godwin and Safford, who are key pieces, who can be extremely efficient offensive players make the most of their touches, Godwin in particular, um, and Stafford can be more of that explosive score. This is going to be a good game, and there's a lot on the line. You know, UNCG is not unbeatable. Um, I do think they are, at this moment, I thought this coming into the year, the best team in the league. Um, but it's because you love Wes Miller. <laughs> three, I love Wes Miller. Three losses, you must be rubbing off. I mean, three losses is not going to win this league. It's going to be four, five, six. So whoever wins this game is going to put themselves in prime position to be right in the heels of UNCG, apply some pressure. The only way that I think the Spartans get to the finish line, and we can talk more about this on Monday in the SoCon Stock Report. Well, let me ask you before you get there. Sure. Okay. Because here, here's, here's what I want to ask. Because and taking ETSU out of the equation yep. and, and trying to do whatever, if you look at the remaining games, yep. to me, and I'm going to read these to you, and you, you, you can disagree, jump in where you want, but I feel like – the easiest end of the season route. Okay. I think Furman has a nice, nicer schedule put together. They're going to get Western Carolina at home. They're going to get Sanford at home. 
They will go to Mercer. Then they get VMI at home, which I think they'll be prepared for since they lost the first one. They get Citadel at home. Then they're at Wofford. To me, you know, unless Mercer gave them the last game of the year, to me, unless Mercer gave them some fits, I could see Furman rattling off five in a row before they play Wofford. I know VMI beat them, but that was at VMI. Yeah, I think Furman's right. so tough at home, okay? Yeah, right. So now you, you look at Wofford. They, they've got one last game, but they're at ETSU. Then they've got the Citadel at home. Then they're on the road back-to-back games, Western Carolina, Sanford, and then they host Furman. So to me, that's, that's slightly – and, and I'll tell you why. Just because they're on the road for me. Right. And then here's what I think UNCG. They go to Mercer and to, and, uh, to VMI. and they Now, they've won at VMI the last couple of years, but they have been very competitive, like last second. Like just – it was the Phantom Isaiah Miller call a couple of years ago. VMI still not yeah, let go. Right. So they're at, at Mercer, at VMI, home to Chad. Then they, then they do the rare Monday-Wednesday double dip again in Western Carolina. Four times this year they've done that, by the way. Four. And, and then they're at ETSU. So, uh, you know, this, my point is, you know, you look at it and you look at the race where it is. Now, and we can talk about each issue. They're obviously Wofford. They've got to go to Chad, who just beat them. Mercer gave them a tough game. They've not seen Sanford yet. They go there. They go to VMI, which has been giving everybody uh, trouble up there. And then they host UNCG. I mean, if you're Furman right now, as, as hard as probably were a little bit, just looking at the schedule, just sitting there, like, I like where Furman sets up because I think they can win five in a row. Yeah. And, and then they go to Wofford, which they've always struggled to win at Wofford. But, you know, Wofford's able to pick up one there. Wofford certainly has proven they're not unbeatable at home. So Furman's schedule sets up. They're not Wofford because, A, they play one less game. they got a couple road games in there. And, and they've had some weird letdowns this year. And then UNCG looks a little tougher. Because even Western back-to-back, as we've seen in, in the league, you know, they've split back-to-back with Wofford. They've split back-to-back with Furman. Now, they did beat Sanford twice. And you could look at it and go, okay, well, they probably got twice. But to me, that's especially because Western can accidentally score some points if all those guys work together. So, uh, and and not that I'm not that I'm sitting here and going to give you a guaranteed 1,000 percent, you know, book it. UNCG is going to do that. I just think those are going to be a couple of hard games before they turn around and play ETSU to round out the season. I got to tell you, I don't love the schedule down the rest of the season for ETSU either. Oh, I agree. Home to agree. At Chattanooga. Chattanooga might be the most dangerous team in the league right and now. And they're figuring it out, right? And, and UNCG's got Chattanooga at home. That's one of their, what, two remaining home games. I mean, that's not going to be easy for UNCG. Home to Mercer for ETSU. At Sanford, um, you know, I just found out. I don't know where my head was, but uh, Christian Gass opted out. He's not playing the rest of the year. Myron Gordon is not with the team. So their top two scores, they don't have anymore. Um, is there some trouble in Bucky Land? Is that well, what I'm not going to okay. speculate on what exactly kind of trouble there is, but certainly he is down um, some players and very key players down the stretch. Um, so you'd hope that's a victory, but then at VMI and home to UNCG, I'd say the two toughest schedules right now, just looking um, at the four that we're talking about, are UNCG and ETSU. So all that to say, this is a huge game in terms of the title race. UNCG is going to lose some down the stretch. I'm still thinking five or six losses is going to take this. So if Agreed. Stafford, Godwin, Murphy, you know, Whoever it is, I think that there are some horses that are going to show up for Wofford. I think that Damari Monsanto and Darius Brewer both need to for ETSU. David Sloan's got to continue to be consistent, and there might even need to be a fourth score for the Bucks that gets to double figures because I, I think that this, and I know this flies in the face of everything that we've said, and keep in mind the last five, I believe it is, and Freedom Hall have been separated by seven or less when these two teams have come together. Um, 
I think that this is going to be actually a pretty high-scoring game. I think we're going to break 70, which I know doesn't sound that high-scoring to the BMIs and the Citadels of the world. I think this is going to be a 78-75. Like, I think this will be a good offensive day for both teams. Again, I know I'm going out on a limb, and maybe I should put that in full predictions later. But um, this is going to be a fun game, and there's a lot on the line in it. All right. Yeah, we did a lot about men's basketball there. We do have some bold predictions to go. Let's step up for a timeout. We'll talk uh, briefly here about ETSU women's basketball. Right after this timeout, your work for sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Powerboard has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Brightridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Sanderson and the sidekick back with you. We transition from men's basketball to women's basketball. And the unfortunate news, not a couple of games this weekend. Of course, uh, the first game would have been yesterday versus uh, the Mercer Bears, and they don't have Saturday's game. And then still, I think, a little up in the air what's going to happen next week. It's originally scheduled for Thursday, Saturday, ETSU women on the road at Sanford. Is there a chance that maybe that moves to Friday, Sunday? Is there a chance that still not be able to go? But there's Running out of time, we're not going to be able to make up all that. There is a game so. on the men's side. Sanford's missing like five games, and I think they're just going to go with if we have to make up one to maybe do a tiebreaker to make up one. But the problem is they've missed games versus some key people, so I don't know what they're going to do on the women's side. It's really ETSU that's missed a, a majority of the games, and so it. I think it's going to be the same thing. Yeah. Are they going to try to you know, force something, circle in a, a square peg? Will they need to figure out if – you know, in the standings, what they're going to do. I mean, they have a formula on, on what they're going to do. And ETSU um, clearly is out of the running for the for the top, right? I mean, right. I think we're honest here. Yes. Yeah, so, the, so they're not going to have a chance to do that. So but they could affect what happens at the top. So I'll be curious to see what they will try to do. And originally it was just like, okay, how does ETSU reschedule West Carolina? Now that a situation where is ETSU going to, you know, is it more advantageous for the league to have them play either? Mercer in that situation because yeah. they're battling for it. You know, if they don't get the Sanford, I mean, to me, it would it may be more advantageous for them to to make up an, a Mercer game or both Mercer games as opposed to West Carolina. I'm sure Coach Ezell, you know, if you had to draw this, you'd probably rather play West Carolina. I would rather play West Carolina. But at the same token, I, because they're trying to figure out the top end more than the bottom end, I'm afraid that ETSU is thinking they're going to get a couple game home games at West Carolina, maybe home games, but it may be against Mercer instead big part of the issue, regardless of who the opponent is, those games that missed have been home games too, right? And Western Carolina, you're scheduled to take on on the 29th to the 31st of January, and then Mercer, you know, your next home series. It seems like every home series, they can't be away games, right? It has to be home series for ETSU. Of course, in the middle, you had to go to Furman, and Furman, you know, put the clamps down and held the Bucks to 102 points in two games, but uh, I think you make a good point, you know, and I hadn't really thought about it that way in terms of what the Bucks are going to be able to make up. Maybe that will come down to but look, Stanford's number one right now. And by the way, they've lost to Wofford. I continually underestimate uh, Wofford. The team that looks right now to be the least talented team that they've had in five years is doing the best results-wise. Southern Conference on both sides can kind of flip your brain on its head and then flip you on your head and then your brain's outside your head and then your brain's back in your head. And I don't know exactly what's going on. So 
Mercer at number two. Of course, they're not playing, but they're only a half game back now with that loss by Sanford. So considering that you have, you know, Mercer, Sanford, and then also, you know, Chattanooga is still going to be fighting for the top as well. They're six and four. You know, they're in the fourth spot. They're not going to fall below four. Um, they, Wofford, Mercer, Sanford, all going to be battling for the league title. I think it's an apt point by you that, you know, Mercer and Sanford are probably going to be the games that the league will want to get in because as of now, um, it's pretty clear that Western Carolina and the Bucks are going to be in that bottom four. Do we know exactly where? Um, no, but it seems obvious that the top four are strong this year at this moment. The bottom four, there's a pretty big divide. You can just look at the standings there. It's three games from Chattanooga down to Furman at number five. Um, what hurts again is with this shutdown, you actually had a game that it was looking like was going to be able to work out Tuesday between the Bucks and Catamounts. But because you're going to be shut down now, you got you know a week, right, the seven days to make sure that there's no uh, further spread of COVID-19. And speaking of unfortunate, no players as of the shutdown um, had COVID-19. It was someone within the program, but no players. And so I'm sure that's very frustrating for the young women that have to be in quarantine right now and can't play um, this weekend. So Mercer, Sanford, Chattanooga, you know, it would be great to have those Western games. Um, it's looking like that 27th final day of the regular season on the men's side uh, may also be employed by ETSU to get a game in, but it's simple math right now, right? You're one in six, you're halfway through the conference season, but as of the end of this weekend, seven of the nine conference weeks will have been played. I mean, you are just running out of time. Um, so if it is Mercer and Sanford, it's going to be very interesting. I've heard no updates about what the plan is. I know that Coach Zell is furiously working through it with um, I'm sure all of the coaches and the league and probably coming from very different perspectives, but I would guess, Jay, that we're looking at three to four more games, right? I mean, I'm just not sure ahead of the tournament that you're going to get teams that want to put their players through, you know, a four games and eight days scenario, things like that. Um, rough timing because everything's gone smooth in the league and then you have the back-to-back shutdowns and I'm certainly hoping that everybody within ETSU women's basketball continues to stay healthy in the one test that was positive, you know, they worked through that as yeah, it could be interesting to see how it unfolds. I was excited to see Shannon Titus, Maureen Neal Tyser, Jaron Doherty, you know, the big three of Southern Conference women's basketball inside Brooks Gym and see how the Bucks were planning on stopping that. And um, those Sanford games, yeah, look out for those to maybe be moved to Friday, Sunday, because you wouldn't imagine Coach Zell wants to get the players that need to be in quarantine out Wednesday and play Thursday, especially with a six-hour drive. Doesn't sound like fun to me. No, and, and the, the league has shown that they've been willing to do that to get the games in. And I think for Sanford, I, I think part of their deal is they'll – they would want to oblige that for the simple reason of the games f- in, right? <laughs> if, if ETSU and Mercer can't be made up, the formula is 10 games and games played and winning percentage and all that other fun stuff. So it seems like that that would be the, the most advantageous thing for Sanford is they're able to get it in and Mercer can't. Then you know, they're going to say, hey, I got more games in, I got more wins, I got sure. whatever. And in case, again, the plan is still for the Southern Conference Tournament to happen, but if it were not to happen, and you just look at the regular season champion, that Sanford's going to be in, in pretty good shape if they can get those couple games in, especially when now each just goes there and upsets them, then they're probably going to be very disappointed if they made that decision. Definitely. And then calling the league and, and trying to vie to get Mercer. But I, I think the league will try to get the Sanford and Mercer, unless it just comes down to travel and money. But from what I understand, you know, the reason why they're not going to are holding off on what they're doing with the five missed games of Sanford and who all they haven't played is to try to figure out, does it affect the top? Do we need to get that game in on the men's to, side? On the men's side. Assume that's 
Right. So I think it, it has, has to, to be the same. I, would, I, I can't imagine. It wouldn't make any sense if it's not. Right. I'm not in the league office. They don't ask me. I'm not on any conference call. But it would make sense that that would be the case. But if ETSU doesn't get the, the Sanford game, then now you're talking about trying to figure out six games in an absurd uh, number of time. And then do they just go, okay, can you get one with maybe Sanford? Do you get one with Mercer? Do you just get a couple of Western and just go, well, you know, Sanford, Mercer, you don't. You don't get that in, and then what does Wofford end up in? So uh, it, it is interesting this year. Uh, the hope is it's just conference tournament because then it, it's, it's all really a moot point other than, I guess, maybe arguing over seeding. Right. The biggest problem would be is if you had to settle conference championship that way and everybody couldn't get equal games. But we all know that's the case, right? It, it's a situation that can happen, but we hope that if nothing else, worst-case scenario, they just get a tournament in, and then somebody can just win on the court, and, and it eliminates that. But I wouldn't be shocked to see if ETSU <coughs> – excuse me – comes down to making up between Mercer and West Carolina that the league doesn't step in and say, no, it's going to be Mercer, unless it's just an argument over Mercer doesn't want to spend money travel. It's easier for West Carolina to come. I, I don't know. I don't know what the league office is going to do, but my gut feeling is that they're going to try to figure out the top of the bracket before they figure out the bottom of the bracket. Well, I hope the Bucks uh, feel good and feel better and are back on the court soon because if nothing else for them, you know, you want to get this experience for the players, right, to be able to play, especially for a Kelly Post who, you know, may or may not be back next year. You know, she's to get back to this Division One level, and she wants to get as many games as possible. And the freshmen, this is going to be valuable time for them to continue to adjust and develop their collegiate game, you know, to fit what needs to work for them in the future. So um, there's things on the line for ETSU, women's basketball, as much as there is for Stanford Mercer, just much more immediate for the Bears and the Bulldogs, while the Bucks are, you know, need the experience to, you know, build for the 2021-22 season and so on and so forth. Um, I hope they're back in the soon because uh, nothing would be worse than to only be able to play a game or two over the last, what, three, four weeks and then have to go into the conference tournament and face a Sanford or a Mercer. That wouldn't be good for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it steps up for our time. You know what is good for us? Fail down. Fail down. Drop this time out. Santa's sidekick on the bucket air. Sports Night at Work. Enjoy the new year with more games, more chances to win, and even more fun from the Tennessee Lottery. And you can play any way you like. Play quick and win big with instant games. Or try drawing-style games that pack a big money bunch. So don't drop the ball. Make a resolution to put a little more cash and a whole lot of fun in your pocket today with the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. One, two, three. One, two, three.
is going to take on the identity of this city, all right? And this city's been been down, and it found a way to get up, all right? It's found a way to uh, overcome adversity, all right? And so this team's going to be built on, uh, we're going to kick you in the teeth, all right? And when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. And when you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off, yeah, all right? Really and we're going to stand up. And then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down. All right, and on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap, and we're going to get up, and then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another hunk out of you. Before, before long, we're the, going to be the last one standing. I'm terrified. I, I don't know if I should be scared or hungry. I, I'm, I'm confused. But, well, we uh, know you're always hungry. That's fair. Dan, Dan Campbell, right, head coach? Dan Campbell, head coach Detroit Lions. Now, I'm wondering if that's more of a fail or the one coming up. But please, debrief me a little bit on what exactly Dan was going for. Uh, it's a little much, Dan. I think all you had to say was we're, we're – we're going to, you know, the old black and blue division, right? The old north, yeah. that's what they used to call it. Like, hey, we're going to get we're, we're going to get back to that. We're going to get back to nobody is going to be tougher than us. We're going to fight claw. I mean, I get the – you get knocked down, you get back up. I just found it interesting that as you're getting back up, you're going to bite people, you're going to do it. I mean, he's hired Greg Williams, defense coordinator, and we're putting hit on people. Like, what are we doing? Like, I, I'm wondering – and I know a couple – believe it or not, I know a couple Detroit fans, and they had asked me if I'd heard the audio – and, of course, they, they loved it. So I played to the crowd, I guess, for Detroit, and they just need something else. I enjoyed my favorite part, besides him cussing, was the simple fact that at least he acknowledged, like, I could say, you don't want to hear that. Like, you know, like just He's acknowledging, right. it's a, nobody wants to hear this. Here, you want to know what, what type of team we're going to be, then here we go. I guess that's what he was going for. I, and I appreciate the fact that he didn't just go b- by the script, right? That's no fun. Uh, thankfully, because of that, we get to make fun of him on fail downs. Now, in your introductory press conference NFL coach bracket of fails, where does that rank versus this? Next thing that's very important to me is that we build a smart football team, that we have a smart football team here. And I know we have the, the people in place to do that. The first part of that, the first part of being smart is knowing what to do. We're going to... We're gonna know. We're gonna have systems in place that are easier to learn. All right, complicated to the defense or offense that they're going against, or the special teams group they're going against, but easy for us to learn. Because when we can put that, because we when we can learn our system and we can get good at our system, then our talent can take over. Less thinking equals talent take over, but we need to have systems in place, and we will have systems in place to do so. Unfortunately, now, English not so easy oh, for Nick Sirianni. Let me ask. Um, I, I just want to. So we want smart football players to get it dumbed down, but the dumbed down is so much more complicated to everyone else's playing against it that then just talent takes over. Is that is that? The talent takeover was one of my favorites. I just, I just I'm confused. Um, Nick Sirianni and Dan Campbell, two drastically whew. different messages. I'm right. sure Nick is leading if, from the top with a smart. If message. you're asking which one I would play for right now, it's Dan Campbell because <laughs> sure. I don't sure. know. And it, and again, I think it's always been unfair. Uh, do you win the press conference? First thing you got to do. Who cares? Now, and, and yes, there are plenty of people that have won the press conference. Plenty of people that lost the press conference. But at the end of the day, it's about winning and losing. And I get that. And I like. I mean, somewhat I get like, okay, we're not going to overcomplicate things, but in the NFL where everything seems to be complicated and everybody wants to overcomplicate it, I get like, okay, we're going to do some things that are easier, but in the same token, like I don't know if that's the way it should be worded or how it was done. I, I'm very – I still don't know what he's going for. I'm, we're going to have the smartest football team 
that has the simplest, dumbest system that is going to out complicate everybody else. Everybody I, I don't, don't I need don't, everyone on talent because we're smarter, but we don't need to be smarter. Because everybody else is thinking about complication that our talented people don't have to think about complication. They just got to go see ball, tackle ball, or something. So, so sure. to be fair, you said, you know, Detroit fans, they're probably just happy it's not Matt Patricia, right? So anything's going to be better than that, your guy from former New England. Doug Peterson also, I think people were sick of seeing Nate Sudfeld play over Jalen Hurts, even though it lasted a quarter. That was pretty much all anyone needed to see of that. So, again, I think that they're probably excited for Nick Sirianni, too, because he's not Doug Peterson. Excited for Dan Campbell because he is not the aforementioned Matt Patricia. Second fail. The Washington Post, uh, you got to be better. Marty Schottenheimer, God rest his soul, NFL coach whose team's wilted in the postseason dies at 77. That was the headline from the Washington Post. Wapo, Marty Schottenheimer, NFL coach whose team's wilted in the postseason dies at 77. Now, wow. even with the change to the headline, which now reads, Marty Schottenheimer, one of the NFL's winningest coaches, dies at 77. The first paragraph of the actual story is still this. Marty Schottenheimer, one of the winningest coaches in the National Football League, whose teams found regular season success yet often struggled in the playoffs and failed to reach the Super Bowl, died February 8th at a hospice center in Charlotte. He was so who, whoever, whoever wrote the article clearly is from Cleveland. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, that the, the fan bias, because it's not anybody in Washington doesn't, Okay, and I get it right now, but my Sydney guess is another strong one. My, but my guess is the the right. If we look up the writer, right, let's see if we can do this on here. I'm wondering I'm if the writer is from Cleveland. And if he's from San Diego, that would be my second guess. But I, I can't imagine the writer is not from the state of Ohio. Not, not that this is about what we're making it about, right? But I am looking at why. Why would you take a shot? Right, a guy died. Why would you take a shot at a Great coach. You look at his overall record, it's great. Insane. You look at his playoff record, get that. I, I get that he, he's not a Super Bowl champion. The man is get, dead. There's not a lot to begin with, right? Uh-huh. There are plenty of great coaches that have had great that didn't win one and whatever. But, yes, when I got out, why would you pick out that part to harp on? That's, yeah, I agree. That, that's, 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 a, that's a bad fail. That's a bad fail. Let's see if you can look up the writer. I'll give you the writer, then I'll introduce uh, okay. uh, third fail. Matt? Shootle or Shuttle. Yeah. M-A-T-T and Shootle or Shuttle. Shootle sounds kind of delicious like Strudel. S-C-H-U-D-E-L. I guess I'm thinking about food now more than you're thinking about food. Uh, yeah, poor taste. I don't care if the guy is remembered for that. And quite honestly, have I made Marty Schottenheimer jokes in the past while the man was alive about, oh, you know, uh, Vikings pulling another Schottenheimer, you know, because I'm a Vikings fan. They never win in the playoffs, right? Okay, I, sure. But when somebody dies, I mean, firstly, he's a human being, right? You know, and I get they have to compartmentalize and say, okay, well, this is sports news and NFL, and so we want to focus on his career because that is what you know, people know him for, but still. Well, he went to school at the University of Nebraska, so he's a Midwest guy. So my, my, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still people. going. I'm still going with, unless he pulled for Kansas City and was mad when Sean Hammer was at Kansas, Kansas City. City, sure. Yeah. Right? Yep. And, I don't have his birthplace, but his main job is to write obituaries, and if that's your main job... Pretty tone deaf, Matt. That's not good. <sighs> okay, all right. Third on. fail. There's lots of failure here. Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, North Carolina, and UCLA all out of the AP Top 25 this week. You mentioned it on the Tuesday show. UCLA, now they haven't been good in a few years. We get that, but for UNC, Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, this is pretty unprecedented. Almost 60 years since none of these schools have been in the Top 25 who is failing more, J.C.? I know it's UCLA, who just got throttled by USC by 18, scoring just 48 points. But their overall record's still pretty good. They just dropped out of the top 25. 
Kansas, who are 10-2 and two with losses to only two top 10 teams. Those two losses to, I believe it was Gonzaga and Texas, before losing five of their last eight. Okay, you know, starting to fall off a little bit. Let's take another step. North Carolina, who have losses to NC State, Georgia Tech, and Clemson on their resume this year, making it look more like a football season than their basketball season. Duke, as we continue to tread through, just lost to UNC and have now lost six of their last eight. Though, all of those losses have been by seven or less, so, you know, they've been in the games. And then Kentucky, who are completely abominable, 5-13, and 13, have lost four in a row. Their only five wins are against Moorhead State, Mississippi State, Vandiana Squeaker, Florida, who are also no longer in the top 25, and LSU. But, but, keep this in mind, Kentucky had the most newcomers or fewest returners. Can't remember which it was. Most newcomers or fewest returners in the country this year, still no 5-13. Who fails more? All. A lot of failure. All. All. Do you know who else fails? Uh, everybody votes in the top 25 that just religiously, by nature of inertia of 75 years, if you're supposed to write these teams in, inertia. that they have to think for you know 90 seconds about, well, maybe they're not good. And you have to talk to someone, because oh, any one of those teams have to do is get on a two-game win streak and they're back in there. I mean, I, it, it wouldn't shock me if somehow if Kentucky won the rest of the games and lost in championship and would be right at 500, they'd figure out a way to get them in, the, in a COVID year, they'd get them in the tournament. Oh, yeah. So to me, that's the fail. The, all of them are the fail. They are who they are right now. It, it's so far down in the season. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. And I think that that's you know, what it is. I think the fail is the billion-dollar brands that they are just aren't very good right now in the way it is, and you can blame whatever you want. And I think all the people that anoint them, the blue bloods, that vote for them are a fail. Everything's a fail. Can you tell me mid-major guy at all? Can you tell me? All right. Honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. Now, that's a fail right there. Speaking that's of college basketball, honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. I mean, he runs a non-profit. Honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's Miller, and now it's Caldwell. I just don't understand why you all of a sudden have turned on the box. I mean, you know, Steve Forbes isn't here anymore. Maybe that's it. You don't have you don't have my love of Alex Hunter on a button, too, somehow? Oh, how do I not? I'm going to keep looking for that, too. Okay. Fourth fail. The Super Bowl, lowest-watched Super Bowl since 2007. Not even 100 million saw it. A lot of people are gathering, going out to bars, restaurants, and it was the epic Mahomes-Brady, old goat versus new goat. But you still couldn't get over 100 million, and typically you're at about 110, 112 lowest-rated Super Bowl since 2007, and those numbers included out-of-home TVs. So that included bars, restaurants, etc. Now, could it be that the pandemic has caused so many bars and restaurants to close or have to hack it a little bit with their services that they provide in terms of television, whatever the case may be, that those numbers were that far down? That's what dragged it. I thought that we'd be in the neighborhood of like 130, 140 million because people were not gathering. They would be more individual. They weren't going out, and so you'd have more people watching it in their home. More individual TVs would be on. I obviously have nothing to do with Nielsen ratings and have no idea what they, uh, what happened in general, and how I, how to read media and the crowds that consume it. I have no idea. I, I, what happened? I think as the game turned a certain way, then I think people turned it off. That would be, I think, maybe there could be something said that there were more people that, that cut the cord, so to speak. And I know that some people find a, a way around it, such as I got YouTube TV, so I also got the local channels and still that, but I do know that, you know, statistically speaking, the People that get local channels, you know, unless you got rabbit ear and stuff, people have gone down this year. And so maybe there just wasn't at mu- uh, as much interest. But I think if you look at Super Bowls as the blowouts continue to happen, Seattle, Denver, some others, that the numbers tend to skew down. And honestly, they've struck gold the last several years. Everything has come down to 
you know, somebody had a shot in the final possession. And, I mean, honestly, the big three to come back. Yeah, and the brutal, you know, New England, St. Louis was 13-3, still a game. I mean, yeah. as brutal as that was, I mean, the Philly-New England game, each quarterback threw for 500 yards. I mean, it was out of control. So you look at, you know, Seattle-New England, you could look at yeah, some, cool. some yeah, other. Exactly so sure, yeah. uh, they've, they had really out of the last, you know, 10 Super Bowls, they've had a couple blowouts this year's, and then I think it was you have to go back to Denver-Seattle um, when the first snap of the game was a safety or whatever, and Seattle won by 35, which was last time a favorite team was just throttled. And still, I think Manning and Denver, that was their – um, I think that still holds as the largest favorite to get beat if you look at uh, the, the margin by the underdog winning. But even the second Denver Super Bowl was a tight game, Kansas City-San Francisco was tight. So I think it can it comes down to as the game gets a little more like it's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen for Kansas City. And I think even if you start the fourth quarter and you gave a little bit of hope, but then they had to turn around and punt, then they went for it on fourth, didn't get it. I mean, I think it just lost more eyeballs as it goes. And especially with the Super Bowl and some other things, they are taking you know quarterly hour checks of these things. It's not just a normal deal because the dollars involved with the sponsors, there's a it's, it's scrutinized much more. So to me, it was the blowout that cost it, and maybe a little bit of the cutting of the cord. Did you watch it with your pal AJ Caldwell? Honestly, AJ Caldwell, just a heck of a shot. I did. I, you know, I, as a matter of fact, him and his uncle, the former GM of the Jacksonville Jaguars, we were very interested in it. David Caldwell, in case you're wondering. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah, go. see, you guys are tight. Yeah, there you go. Bolt, if you want. Tom Brady had Antonio Brown to Tampa. Absolutely not. What do you follow on Brady's uh, drunk? Play Thompson, comeback player of the year. Not a fail in my book. Calling it right now. The season Jim Harbaugh is taking Michigan. To 2021, baby. Well, there's just no doubt. The Southern Conference will be playing football in 2020. Big win in Chestnut. We'll be back in the blue and gold. Oh, yeah. Sandoz will fulfill his New Year's resolution 30 pounds down during quarantine. Did not. What he just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. A simple wrong would have done just fine. Bold predictions. I've got eight and a half right. You've got six. I am pulling away. Eight and a half. Eight and a half. No half. There is a half. It's not a half. Eight and a half. Let's hope half. that I continue it this half. week. Damari and Ladarius combine for 40 or more. Woo! That's a good one. I actually more. actually thought about that, but I'm going to double-digit win for the Bucks over the Terriers. Double-digit win. Love it at home. They did it to – now Furman was nine, but – was it nine? Yeah. And then BMI was 11. Western Carolina was eight. So they right, right around that for most of their home games. This is going to be a good one. I'm excited. Uh, the SoCon, the most unexpected of the unexpected happens. All five favorites win. Basketball and so yeah, that is, it is honestly, the most yeah. unexpected. Yeah, no, that would. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I didn't know where you're going at first, but yes, not. All these upsets now because of this conference and being what it is. The most unexpected thing would to be Chattanooga, VMI, UNCG, Furman, ETSU all win. Favorites. It's gonna happen. All right, I have no idea who any of the top ten teams in the uh, college and Saturday major top twenty-five are playing, but I'm going the way it's gone and what I've seen. Three of the top ten will go down this weekend. Without looking at matchups. I have no idea. Three of the top ten. So, Gonzaga, Belmont, Lalo, Chicago, Drake. Belmont, by the way, you know the only team to beat Belmont this year? Uh, When is Sanford? Sanford. Yeah. 96 to 83. What in the world is that? Great win. That's what's keeping them out of the 300s. 
Okay, I mean, but if you just look at it, okay, Gonzaga, Belmont, the Little Chicago, Drake, BYU, Winthrop, Toledo, Liberty, Wright State, and Abilene Christian are the three. And they, the most losses that anybody has is BYU at – I'm sorry, Toledo has five, Liberty has five. I was going to say, what, did the Wright top State. four have a combined two or three? Uh, two? Uh, let's see, four. is that five? The top four have five total losses. Oh, because Loyola Chicago has lost three times. Wow, they're right, but they're, they, right yeah, but they, they've rock and rolled the last – I think I owe you a pretty easy one because if I remember right, I had a relatively easy one that I got right. So that's a little bit easier. I, I, you know, I, I'll say this. If I did a, a ton of research on you and was trying to who do you, but I have zero <laughs> idea who anybody's playing. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Uh, in college basketball, Michigan State's finding their groove. They continue their drive towards March with a double-digit upset of Iowa. Double-digit upset mm. of Iowa. I just so you can send. He's still coaching there, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. good. So is this so you can send Steve Forbes and Shea a message about Iowa because they always crush Minnesota? <laughs> well, that is part okay. of it. Yeah, there's no question. All right, you ready? A sport I know nothing about. Yes. Daytona 500. Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace. If you look at the thing, he is the 16th most favorite driver. He's going to win his new venture. He's going with Jordan and all these people on the car in the Toyota. I just read this. In the Toyota. <laughs> boom. He's going to win it. When is the last time you watched a NASCAR race? Uh, any of a NASCAR race. I don't even need wire to wire like any NASCAR. Probably when I was actually at Bristol. Which would have been when, quite some time. Right, and I was like, either working at or at beverages somewhere. If you're, like, turning the channel and if you still have cable, oh, you have YouTube TV, so you yeah. can actually choose. But if you were scrolling through the TV, would you just continue to scroll past? Yes. The, the, the only race I ever sort of kind of pay attention to is when it is at Bristol, and, it, and I have to be flipping through, and I'm like, oh, the night race is on, and I'll watch it for a second. Well, that's anybody that's but Bubba for right. me this weekend. <laughs> so what do you got? What do you got on here? You, you, I did, did three. You did three? Yeah, bye-bye. All right, Buccaneers Sports Network. <laughs>